Genesis chapter 8, no, Genesis chapter 9. So we're returning to a place in the Bible that is the Pentateuch, the first five books. The first five books were written by Moses, and they were written while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. So uh, this book we're studying, this passage we're studying, is written to the Jewish people um, while they were in the wilderness. And that's really important, you know, um, because when you study the Bible, you want to know who the original audience was, who is the actual letter being sent to, sent to the church that was in Rome. It was sent to the church that was in Philippi. And so that gives the context of the letter. And so you study it from that context, and then you see how it applies to you and me, you know, so many years later. And so this is very important for us to remember because everything that is being said in, the, in, this, in this book of Genesis is framed within that context. It tells us and it tells them where they came from. These, these Jewish people who had escaped from Egypt and they were in the wilderness, and we remember that they, they worked their way all the way up to Canaan, and then they lost heart. They sent in spies and they checked out the land and the cities were, were fortified. They had armies, they had uh, you know, iron and chariots, and there was giants, and so they lost heart. And they, they didn't believe God could get them in there. And so they're in the wilderness. And so that is the, the audience that this letter is being written to. So it tells them where they came from. It tells them why the world is the way that it is. And it does this by moving through several major pieces. It begins with the creation. The creation in the very beginning of the book tells us who God is. Uh, it tells us what it was like when there wasn't any sin. What, what was it like before sin? So it tells them. And then it moves on. It tells them that the conditions that were created by sin. And so we remember that after the fall, there was a set of conditions, a covenant that was arranged with Adam after the fall. And then we move forward till we get through the flood. And after the flood, there are new conditions. We looked at those last Sunday. New conditions that are given to mankind uh, with Noah and the, and the flood. And so it, it tells us the unconditional covenants that God has made with Adam and Noah that are still in place today. Uh, it tells them about the absolute, uh, the absolute corruption of sin. Uh, sin is not your friend, and it will corrupt you. So you have to have it removed. So this is something that we saw in Eden. We saw that Eden was a wonderful place, but once man had fallen, it was no longer suitable for him. Uh, we saw what happened. We saw what happened with the flood. That the entire human race and the, and the creation had become so corrupted that God brought that final judgment with the flood. We're going to read a little bit this morning about the Tower of Babel. So again, we're going to see that, uh, you know, when those eight people left the ark, and it was probably just a really uh, wonderful experience to finally get off of that boat, to be setting their foot on dry ground, and uh, just to see the promise that God had made to them. Uh, and the sign of that promise was the rainbow, and how encouraging that must have been to them. And then very quickly we begin to see uh, that man is still a sinner, and that man continues to mess up. And this will escalate till we get to chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. So uh, we see what creation is, who God is, what it was like before sin, 
the conditions that have been created because of our sin and the nature of sin and how it corrupts. And it corrupts absolutely. So these are all things that move through here, but uh, there's also the, the message of hope in Genesis, which is the concept of substitutionary atonement, of someone else taking your place. This was taught in Eden when an animal was used to cover their nakedness. It was taught again when Cain and Abel offered their offerings to God and God accepted Abel's offering. It was shown to us again after the flood when Noah gave the burnt offerings. So we talked about that. Uh, and, And the God's ultimate promise of restoration that was first given to us in that promise, that prophecy of Genesis 3.15. It was again reminded to us with the ark when God saved a remnant. And then today we're going to see the line of Shem. And this is where God intends to fulfill His messianic promises through the genealogy and the lineage of Shem, one of Noah's three sons. So it's real important for us to just kind of have a big a, a ballpark idea of how the book of Genesis is set up in the beginning. The first 11 chapters are fundamental to the rest of the Bible, and it hits major pieces that are foundational, and it moves through them very quickly. Uh, doesn't spend a lot of time on them. And so uh, these 11 chapters conclude with the nations, telling us where the nations came from. And specifically, who the people of Canaan are. Um, because you'll keep in mind that even though the Jewish people uh, lost heart and they did not enter the land, they're in the wilderness and they're going to in the future. And so they have an adversary that they are going to be faced, facing, which is, of course, the people of Canaan. Um, and so in keeping with that, just think of the way Moses has arranged this information. He begins to uh, bring reality uh, to, to the Jewish people uh, to alleviate their fears, to give them confidence in God. And so the first thing he did that we saw was very specific about the Canaanites was in chapter 6 when he was talking about the Nephilim and the sons of God. And the point he was trying to make is that uh, the Canaanites are not half human, half angel. They're not superhumans. They're not controlled by, by, they're not these demonoid people that are giants. Um, uh, He was saying, no, giants is genetic. And there were giants before the flood and there's giants after the flood. They are just mere men like you and I. They're just bigger than us. And the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? And so when we think forward, when we, the king of Bashan, Og, uh, and how they handled him, when we think about David and how he handled Goliath, these are two giants, offspring of, of genetic offspring, that were very large people. And we remember that Goliath had several brothers. And so when David went down to the brook and he got those stones, he got enough stones for all of the brothers. You know, uh, but at no point are these people talked about like they're some kind of superhuman uh, half-angel, half-man creatures. It's it's just not the case. They're just people. And so this is one of the really important points that he makes. And the second one is what we're looking at today is he begins to talk about who the Canaanites are, where they came from. And specifically that the Canaanites are the descendants of Ham. So Noah had three sons. And they come from one of the boys. Ham. 
And so this is very important. Uh, this is what we find out in chapters 9 through 11. And uh, finally, after all of that introduction, when we get to chapter 12, through Moses, God begins to narrow in on the origin of the nation of Israel. So that's what happens next in chapter 12, the, the origin of the nation of Israel. So sweeping movements through chapters 1 through 11 that conclude with where all of these people groups have came from, and which is what we're going to look at here in a moment, where all of these people groups come from. And once he's done with that, setting the stage with who the people of Canaan are, he introduces the origin of the nation of Israel in chapter 12. So it's kind of exciting to me. Um, now, chapters 9, uh, Genesis 9, 18 is where we left off. So from Genesis chapter 9, verse 18, all the way to chapter 11, verse 9, is one thought. It's like one, it's like one section. It's, it's one idea. And you have to look at the entire thing at once to see the point that Moses is making. Um, so we're going to take it in pieces, of course. And this is the, the section that we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, and it begins in chapter 9, verse 18. And let's, uh, let's read the chapter uh, from beginning in verse 18. And remember that the first part of chapter 9 is the covenant that God made with Noah and the rest of creation. So beginning in verse 18. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. So right then and there we see that Noah and his wife did not have any other children. Everybody that was born after the ark came through these, these three marriages, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Sham and Japheth took a cloak, and they placed it both over both of their shoulders, and walking backwards, they covered their father's nakedness. Now their faces were turned away, and they did not see their fathers naked. They didn't see their father naked. And when Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan will be cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Praise the Lord, the God of Shem. Canaan will be his slave. God will extend Japheth. He will dwell in the tents of Shem. Canaan will be his slave. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So Noah's life lasted 950 years, and then he died. Now we notice right off the top that the whole earth was populated. And again, uh, this is by Noah's three sons. So the next chapter, chapter 10, uh, might seem like a very boring chapter, but what it does is it begins to list all of the descendants of these three sons and the nations that they formed. And out of all of that, our text right here, beginning in verse 18, singles out this one important fact. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, to the Jewish people, that doesn't mean that Canaan is the only uh, important country. Egypt's pretty important to the nation of Israel, aren't they? Egypt. They were important a long time ago when they got led out of Egypt, and 
trust me, Egypt is going to be in the news with Israel from all the way forward through the entire time. Uh, Babylon, Rome, Greece, Persia. So there are many people groups that are very important to the nation of Israel. But out of all of these nations that are listed, it zeroes in on the fact that Ham was the father of Canaan. This is because they are the inhabitants of the land that God has promised. They possess the land. And unfortunately, they are the ones Israel will continue to struggle with uh, to separate from. They become the nemesis or the antagonist of God's people standing in the way of their single-hearted devotion to God. This is why Canaan is so important. Now, we're reading here that Noah had too much to drink. Uh, he's uncovered in his tent. Ham discovers this and goes and gets his brothers to tell them too. Most likely Noah was hot, took off his clothes before falling asleep. And then when he awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, this has led to all kinds of wild speculations from homosexuality to rape to uh, even castration. Uh, there's an idea that he slept with Noah's wife because Leviticus 20.11 says, the man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. But nothing more is warranted beyond his nakedness here in the text. There's no reason to jump to all of those kind of wild conclusions. Uh, in the Hebrew, it doesn't imply anything. So I've read a lot about this. It's just kind of crazy because... Everybody that studies this, the scholars, it seems like everybody gets so sidetracked with what it was Canaan did, what did Ham do, what, what was Noah, you know, they're all so, and then, and then you can, if you do that, you'll lose sight of the point. Because that's, that's really not the issue, you know. Uh, we're not majoring on the sin or the fact that, that Noah had become drunk. He shouldn't have done that, obviously, I guess, but um, that's not the point. The, the, the text is focusing in on the son's response to his dad, Ham. That's the problem. Because Ham appears to have taken great satisfaction in this. You know, if, if some kind of wild thing had happened, uh, you're just, you're, you're, you're reading too much into it. Because what, all that was happening is, is Noah was uncovered. Because the two sons took a cloak and they walked back into the tent backwards and they covered him up. Okay, so there's nothing more uh, needs to be read into this. It's not really warranted from the text. But uh, Ham took satisfaction uh, in the fact that shame was being cast upon his father's dignity. And why would he take such pleasure in such a thing? We've all seen something bad happen to somebody and, and somebody said, oh good. They had that coming. Ooh, good. I can't stand them. How many times have you heard somebody say that? Good. Yeah. This was Ham's response. He thought his brothers would feel the same way. So he went and told his brothers. And we find out that his brothers did not feel the same way. It revealed that uh, he had uh, resentment toward his father's authority and his father's moral standard. He was there in the church service 
but his heart was elsewhere. And this incident exposed that. It says Canaan will be cursed. And of course this stands in sharp contrast to praise the Lord, the God of Shem. So here's another brother who is uh, the Lord is his God. So you have Ham and his, his heart and you see Shem and his heart. Now, we notice that it's not Canaan that did this, it was Ham. And Ham had Canaan. Canaan is his son. And so the, the curse is being cast upon Canaan. And we know from Ezekiel chapter 18 that the son is not punished for his father's sin. So when Lauren sins, River doesn't have to pay for it. And when I sin, my kids don't have to pay for it. I answer for my own sin. Uh, this is uh, elaborately spelled out in chapter 18, but I've got a, a quote portion of it. It says, a, this is Ezekiel 18, verse 20. A son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity. And a father won't son, suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. So really all that's happening here is uh, that in the future, the Canaanites are going to be ultimately displaced in order to bless Shem. Uh, we know that Abraham descends from Shem. And so this is where the godly line is coming, the, the, mess, the Messiah is coming. So this is less of a curse and more of a prophecy. It's more of a prophecy on the direction that the descendants of Ham through Canaan are going to take. It's not necessarily talking about all of Ham's sons, but Canaan's. And uh, this is, this is a, it doesn't mean that, and, and you just have to be, this is big picture. So it's not trying to say that every single descendant from Cain, Canaan is going to not believe in God and be bad. It's not saying that. We know that Rahab, for example, is in the lineage of Christ. And she came from Jericho, and God rescued her. So we are, we, there are other people in the Old Testament. We see Canaanites coming to faith in, in the one true God. And so, but as a whole, the direction of these people. So it's, it's telling us that uh, the, the moral nature and destiny of the Canaanite people. And so we'll keep that in mind as we... I'm turning this off every time so it doesn't go too far. Look at that. Okay, so uh, this brings us to chapter 10. And I want to read it, but I don't want to kill you. Uh, it's going to tell us the, the lineage of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it starts with Japheth's sons. It will then move to Ham's sons, and then finally end with Shem's children. And there are notable things about all of them. Uh, you'll see on the map there, uh, on the chart, that it will name the boys Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then you'll see their, their, the children that they have, like Ham has Cush and, and Canaan. Uh, but some of the kids it, it will go on and tell who they had. Not all of them, but some of them. And so it's very interesting how it chooses to do this. This is a, a genealogy, but it's not a tight one. It does not have dates and years. It's not like the, the chronology in chapter 11 that we're going to see. It's not like the, chronology, the genealogy that we saw in chapter 5. This is a looser one. 
and it's jumping from from uh, direct descendants sometimes to people groups. Um, so there's 70, 70 descendants in all. And so from Japheth, there's 14, from Ham, 30, and from Shem, 26. And so let's just read a little bit of it so you've got to get the feel of how this thing works. Uh, these are the family records. This is chapter 10. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the deluge, after the flood. Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. And then it goes specifically into some of Gomer's children. Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togomar, and then Javan. Javan's sons, Elishan, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. The coastland people spread out into their lands. These are Japheth's sons by their clans and their nations. Each group had its own language. And this is a very telling thing, isn't it? Because we know in chapter 11 that everybody speaks one language. So this is what happens in chapter 11 is later. It happens first before this listing of chapter 10. And uh, this is kind of interesting. So... Uh, when he says each group has its own language, it's going to, it says that in verse 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 5. And then when it talks about Ham's kids, it says they all, each clan and nation, and they all have their own language in, in chapter 10, verse 20. And then when he talks about Japheth's, or um, uh, Shem's children in, in verse 31, it says they speak their own language too. And so that lets us know that this listing of the nations here in chapter 10 is after the Tower of Babel. You know, sometimes we advance into the future when we're telling a story. So when, when, uh, uh, when Noah's burnt offering, when we start talking about Noah's burnt offering, what do we do? We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when, when Cain and Abel, and the, uh, that promise. Then we might jump forward to Abel and Cain's offering. You know, uh, Then we may talk about Noah's burnt offering. Then we may jump forward into the Mosaic law and even to the cross. So whenever you're trying to explain something, sometimes you will draw things in to fill it out. So in the big picture of this, there's three pieces to what Moses is doing here. He's saying, he's saying the people we're getting ready to go face are the Canaanites. The Canaanites came from Ham. Now, Canaan is his son, and Canaan his, has a bent against the moral standards of God, a bent against submitting to the authorities of God. That's who these people are. These people are not God's friend. They were opposed to God. They have chosen to go live their own way. That's the people we're going to go face. And then in chapter 10, he gives us the list of the nations. And so he shows us who these Canaanite peoples are and where they came from and how they ended up. And then in chapter 11, he's going to show why everybody is in the locations that they're in, when God dispersed all of these people that created these nations. So it's, it's a little bit of a, it's, it's chronological, and then it's going to the future, and then it's going to go back a little bit. It's all telling the same story. That's why this is all important for us to look at all at once. Um, uh, he's trying to explain first that they're descendants of Ham, that they're in opposition to God, and that they migrated there after the confusion of the languages in the Tower of Babel. That's what happened. So uh, this is um, uh, this is a, 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 a map that shows us in 
Some of this is a guess. Some of this is educated guesses, but most of it's pretty, pretty solid uh, information. But you can see where the descendants ended up spreading out to. Japheth's descendants on the map are in green, and you have probably heard of Gog and Magog in Bible prophecy. Gog and Magog are mentioned here, and then they're again mentioned in Ezekiel and in Revelation. Those are the two places. Um, uh, they become, they're of little importance in the Old Testament or in the New, but in the future, Gog and Magog become very important. And so uh, we find out in Ezekiel 38 and 39 about Gog. He's from the land of Magog. And Magog is modern-day Russia. And uh, he leads a great army from several other nations to attack Israel. So something is going to happen in the future. Of course, Magog will not win. On the map there, Ham's descendants are in brown. And... Uh, of course, there's Canaan. He's one of his sons. Uh, Cush is one of his sons. Cush fathered Nimrod. And uh, as we read through the text there in verse 8, it says that he was the first powerful man on earth. So he was an empire builder, this Nimrod. Um, he built the cities of Babylon and Nineveh, among others. And in, in verse 9, it tells us that he was a powerful hunter. And so this gives us an indication of the demise of the dinosaurs. You know, uh, he was a great hunter, renowned, as he built these cities and, and these empires, and uh, animals had to be hunted out and removed to make room for people. Um, there's a Sheba, who is one of the descendants uh, from Rama, and Rama is a descendant of Cush. And so we've heard of the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10. Um, Mizraim is the same as Egypt. It's one and the same. And we are told that the Philistines descended from uh, Cashlehem. And so uh, Canaan's firstborn son was Sidon from the Phoenicians. And so it gives us, a, if we go back a little bit, it kind of gives you an idea of the people that came from, from Ham. And they're very important uh, descendants in, in, in the Bible. Now, Shem's uh, descendants... Um, Go back there. Uh, Shem's descendants are in purple, and there's Eber, and uh, Eber descends from Arpachshad, and he has two sons, Joktan and Peleg. Well, Peleg is the one that the Messiah comes through. That's the godly line. Uh, there's a phrase about Peleg here in verse 25. It says that he was there during the days when the earth was divided. And so this refers to the confusion of the tongues. And so Peleg tells us that this dispersion of the people from Babel occurred five generations after the flood. Kind of gives us a timetable. And of course, Abraham is going to descend from Peleg. And so finally, if I haven't lost you completely um, at all, I probably have, I apologize, it's a lot. But um, let's look at the Tower of Babel, these uh, first nine verses of chapter 11. This kind of concludes the, the thought. It says, at one time the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and they settled there. 
They said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the, over the face of the whole earth. And then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, If as one people all, have, all having the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And so the events here explain how those people were dispersed and where they ended up that are so well described for us in chapter 10. But again, the primary point and objective Moses has is to introduce us to the people of Canaan because this was of primary importance to the, to the people of Israel. It says here, let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the earth there in verse 4. So they were defying God's command to fulfill the earth and to multiply and fill the earth. So confusing man's language was a judgment that prevented man from unifying rebellion against him. And it was successful because in verse 9 it says, after he confused their language, therefore its name is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Well, this land of Shinar is, in, is Babylonia. It's the area of Babylon. Babel means confusion. And so this was a city that Nimrod built, who of course is a descendant of Ham. And uh, this location of the Tower of Babel, um, it's, uh, it runs, uh, the, runs from this period of time. Uh, we talked about how there was the, the world, the global flood. And after the flood, uh, the waters began to recede and the earth began to try to, to reset and return to an equilibrium. And it continues to do that because we continue to have tectonic movement and earthquakes and uh, uh, the earth has never really completely settled. But the volcanic activity, the warm water, the cooler skies, it created that ice age that we talked about. And so uh, the, the, the north and south parts of the globe were, were frozen and that forced people and animals to all move towards the equator. And so that's why in this period of time right here, uh, these, these temples that people built all over the world, they call them ziggurats. They're just these kind of stared, stared towers. Uh, they're, they're in the Mayan ruins and the Incas, the Aztecs, they're in the jungles of, of uh, Brazil, uh, Mesopotamia, uh, all around the globe. And so the, circling the entire equator from this period of time are all of these ruins of this period of time. And uh, this was a ziggurat, uh, so to speak, and they're actually surviving ones in Babylon today that uh, we have plenty of pictures of. And so the purpose of these elevated temples was designed to create a sacred space where man could ascend up and the gods would come down to meet man. And uh, this was the concept. And uh, in Zechariah, there's this, uh, talking about the city of Babylon that, that Nimrod built. In Zechariah chapter 5, there's this, this basket, 
and it's uh, Zachariah shown this. It's a prophecy. And so he's shown this basket, and there's this lead cover on the basket. The lids left it off, and there's a woman inside the basket. And it tells us that this is wickedness. And he puts the lid back on her, and then the basket is taken to Babylon. And there it stays. It's confined. But in Revelation chapter 20, we find out that she is freed and worshipped. And then in chapter 18, Babylon the Great is the center of wickedness and demon worship. We also find out that the root of Jesse will be gathered from Shinar and other parts of the earth for God's future kingdom. as told to us in Isaiah chapter 11. So there is a significant connection between Babylon and the world's rebellion against God and even a future association with the Antichrist. Now, it says here that at one time the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. And so confusion caused segregation. Confusion isolated gene pools. Think of it. You had to gravitate towards the people that you could speak to and, and, uh, and communicate with. And think of the, the tragic consequences of not being able to communicate with each other. You, can, you begin to not trust each other, misunderstand. This is a, a terrible judgment on earth because of man's defiance. Um, in, in, in DNA research, they recognize that there's a common male and female ancestor. It's called the mitochondrial Eve and the Y chromosomal Adam. Uh, in a very similar way, linguistics work with proto-language tree models that, that point to root ancestral languages. And so back to one language. So we're looking at a period of time when, when all men descended from Adam and a time when all men spoke one language. Now, uh, differences in, in skin tone because uh, Asians and Caucasians and, and black and uh, Indian and Hispanic all have different skin tones and uh, unique features, characteristics that kind of ID, ID, I, identify someone as more Asian than Caucasian. and We can see all of these differences. So uh, skin tone was probably very apparent prior to this confusion in the Tower of Babel. It was probably already apparent. Uh, but when people groups were, were isolated from each other by language, distinctive characteristics became more prevalent as isolated people groups intermarried. The land of Cush. Cush is Ethiopia. Cush means burnt one, so they're very dark-skinned. Uh, now, Cush, descendants of Cush, filled all the way through Saudi Arabia and Persian Gulf and all of that, all in there, but there was also all in northern Africa below Egypt. And so think of it. Cush, the descendants of Cush, were neighbors with the descendants of, or uh, were, they were neighbors with Egypt, Mizraim. So Ham had Cush and Ham had Mizraim, Egypt. And they were neighbors there in northern Africa. But they look very different. They look very different. That's because their vocabulary, their languages were different, and they stayed separated from each other through intermarriage. And uh, characteristics became more prevalent. Uh, uh, this is undeniable skin tone differences between Egyptians and Ethiopians. Uh, not only did people speak differently, but they began to look differently too. And so this all feeds into the sin nature, the inability to properly communicate. And distrust is inherent 
because of the special interests of one group and the special interests of another. So you have these people, they want to, they want to be able to, to live and be safe. They want to be able to live in happiness. But they don't trust you because you want the same thing and you both want this river. And uh, you can't even communicate with each other. And because these dominant physical characteristics were coming out of people who were uh, living with each other and, and having children with each other from one language, people were looking different too. And so this is what develops with these various people groups, distrust, misunderstanding, racism, betrayal, war. So this was quite a judgment. So uh, that's Operation Christmas Child, you guys. That's what we're going to be doing in October. So I want to sit close with just this. When, when people don't like each other, it can't be for some, for some reasons. It might be for bad reasons, but they're not valid reasons. So when people don't like each other, it cannot be because we were all created in God's image. It can't be that. You can't dislike somebody for that reason because we're all created in God's image. And you can't dislike somebody really because we're all brothers and sisters. We have all descended from Adam. Every one of us. We're brothers and sisters. Every one of us. Every person you've ever watched on TV, saw on the news, everybody in Cincinnati, all around the world, we're all related to each other. We're all brothers and sisters all created in God's image, so we can't possibly not like each other for that reason. And it can't possibly be skin tone. Skin tone is genetic. Nobody has control over that. You can't not like somebody because of skin tone. So when you don't like somebody, it can't be for those reasons. There's really only two viable reasons for not liking someone. And there are two. The first one is because of what somebody does, their behavior. That is very legitimate. The legitimate reasons why we cannot have fellowship with someone. That doesn't mean that we hate someone. We just can't have fellowship with them. There are people that you are not going to be able to have fellowship with. And I'm, I'm using terms like hate and like, dislike. We don't hate people. Christians are not like that. We're not supposed to hate anybody. But because of the way some people carry themselves, the things that they do, we can't really have fellowship with them. Remember, skin tone is genetic. We are all created in God's image. We are all related. And we are all sinners. What does that mean? It has to be behavior and behavior alone. Sometimes that does prevent us from liking someone or being able to have fellowship with them. The other reason is also valid, but this reason requires understanding and love. And that's culture. Because every culture has distinctives. Culture is different. If you've ever been to a white funeral or a black funeral, they are different. 
sometimes you can bring them together. It's something really beautiful. Just something our church wants to be able to do. But the cultures are different. If you've ever been to a predominantly black church service and a predominantly white church service, they are very different. Different culture. We remember that Ken and Bing Ewing used to come to this church and his wife Bing was from the Philippines. And in the Philippines, they have something called the ballot, B-A-L-U-T. It's a delicatessen, it's a delicacy there. It is an egg that is developed. It's like there's a chicken inside the egg. And they eat, they eat it like that. And they love it. It's a delicacy. It's in Cambodia and Vietnam and other places in Asia. This is something very good. But here it's repulsive. It's not to them. And so you have to have understanding and love. Right? You don't dislike Bing because she likes the balut or the balat. You know? And she can't not like us because we don't. When cultures clash, when culture differences, when cultural distinctives come together, there has to be love and understanding. In other words, you have to appreciate the other culture and the wonderful things. But within a culture, there are subgroups. And this is what people confuse. Because within a subgroup of a culture, there can be very bad things. Within white culture, there are white supremacists. But they are not indicative of the entire culture. So the problem is when we don't like each other because of skin tone, or we don't like each other because of culture in general, or we lump an entire culture into the behaviors and beliefs of a subgroup. That is not what Christians are supposed to do. And the reason I bring this up is because in the Bible here, we've been looking at Moses leading these people through the wilderness. They're coming to the land of Canaan. And it is inhabited by people who are lost, who are in defiance against God. Their belief system is completely different. And Israel can't move in there with those folks. Because if they do, they will merge. They will intermarry. Their belief systems will begin to mix together. And there's corruption in that. And so the Canaanites have to go. Now they know that the Jews are coming. And they can leave. But we know from the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, that they decide to stay and fight. And so there is war. And there is intermarriage. And there is corruption. And in Sunday school, we're studying First Kings. And we see all through the... The history of, of Israel's kings, the, the idolatry and corruption. And so, uh, as Christians, we need to be very careful who we don't like. This is a church that uh, welcomes everyone and is just honestly, just honestly happy when someone walks through the door. That's us. Uh, we love anybody who comes in here. And uh, that's, a, that's the way Christians are supposed to be. And, but I thought it was helpful for us to look at what happened at the Tower of Babel, how it dispersed people, nations were formed, and the distrust that is inherent in different nations, because each nation has a self-interest. 
and when they can't communicate with each other, and when you know that they have a special interest and they have special interests, and this is what causes war, distrust. When people look different, they come from different cultures. You can get it all twisted. You know, it boils down to the fact that if you're going to disapprove of something someone does, it's because of their behavior. And you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You don't just wash away an entire culture because that would be silly. You know, like we talked about, God rescued Rahab out of the city of Jericho. The rest of the people of Jericho rebelled and they fought. They did not repent, but Rahab did. And so you don't want to throw away a culture because of the behaviors of a subgroup, somebody within a culture that's doing something that's wrong, or even a, a group of people within a culture. So let's pray.